0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Dr. Jack Watling, the Senior Research Fellow for Land Warfare at the Royal United Services Institute the world's oldest think tank. Uh, he is one of the world's leading experts on ground combat, who has studied conflicts worldwide and across history uh, and has had a considerable focus on the Ukraine war, uh, where he has uh, spent some time on the front lines uh, to divine the lessons uh, from this conflict. And of course, uh, he has been a past uh, guest on our strategy program. Jack, thanks so very much and welcome back.
1: It's good to be back with you, voga.
0: Uh, it is a pleasure indeed. We saw each other briefly at uh, AUSA and it is a pleasure to to welcome you back. Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. HII sponsors our Global Coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our Strategy Coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our Command and Control Coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our Air and Naval Coverage. Uh, Jack, a um, lot of discussion. Uh, you you know, about uh, where uh, Ukraine stands in its war to regain as much of its territory from uh, Russian uh, occupation. Obviously, uh, Israel's war on Hamas in Gaza has taken a lot of attention away from the conflict, but it is still an incredibly consequential conflict that's going on. Stalemated to a degree, um, Russians counterattacking in Avdivka. Walk us through where we stand right now in this war Because the last time we spoke, Ukraine really had seized quite a lot of initiative uh, to not only blunt the Russian assault, but actually reclaim a bit of territory.
1: So the Ukrainians have been conducting offensive operations for a number of months. Uh, The premise of those operations was to try and break through Russian defense lines. That effort has now failed. uh, And I think we can be fairly definitive about that. Um, And so the Ukrainian military has shifted to attempting to circumvent those defense lines through a mixture of pressure on the flanks. We're seeing uh, a building uh, harassment of Russian forces across the Dnipro. Uh, We're also seeing the harassment of the Black Sea fleet and strikes in depth. And what that is in aid of is trying to essentially keep the Russians in a defensive crouch through the winter, The Russian military had significant reserves. It chose to commit them to this quite um, rushed offensive in Avtavika. It is not going very well, Um, somewhat prematurely committed. And so both forces now are in a position of trying to establish who will have the initiative going into the spring. Uh, and for the Russian military, they are preparing their long-range strike campaign, which is likely to to once again target critical national infrastructure. They're building up a stockpile of missiles for that. Uh, they are also paralyzing the Ukrainian economy through strikes on uh, Odessa uh, and other port facilities, tr- which is essentially um, making up for the fact that the Black Sea fleet is no longer able to enforce a close blockade. Right.
0: Um,
1: and on the Ukrainian side, Many of their units uh, are needing to retrain, regroup, be brought back up to strength uh, and be re-equipped. Um, the question is whether that can be done before the spring.
0: It does. What is the next phase of this campaign? The Russians have transferred to a war economy, uh, are building up uh, capabilities. Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses uh, joins us each week and gives us updates. The Russian capabilities are getting better. Um, And our barrels are depleting, and we are not refilling those barrels, whether on the air and missile defense side of things or, uh, right, I mean, at least we're getting a little bit better on our artillery game. How do you see this playing out in the next phase, uh, Jack? And could, could the Russians be actually, you know, given that they're bolstering their Shahed stocks, their Kinjal stocks, and everything else, actually... Be a much more dangerous adversary this winter than they were last winter to degrade Ukrainian capabilities, as opposed to giving the Ukrainians an opportunity to rest and recharge.
1: We are reaching a fairly decisive decision point, I think, for the West, which is are we prepared to make the industrial investment to make the uh, defense of Ukraine sustainable and Ukraine's victory possible? Um, As you say, the Russians have moved on to a war footing. They are significantly increasing the volumes of production for artillery, for UAVs, um, and they are also receiving a significant influx of of munitions newly produced from North Korea, Iran, and a number of other uh, states. Um, On the Western side, the tendency has been to delay the decision to ramp up production. um, And even in artillery production, munitions production, the increase has been pretty slow and uncoordinated. Um, the result being that Ukraine is going to slip back to probably having uh, being overmatched by Russian fires again. They, were, they had the advantage in fires over the summer. Um, and so the critical question there becomes, how do the Ukrainians keep up a high rate of attrition on the Russian forces? Because if they're not able to do that, if the rate of attrition comes down, then the Russians can start training and generating more units of action. And and that's where we start to get into a very very dangerous position uh, over the course of 2024. If the rate of attrition can be kept up uh, and we make the appropriate investments, then we will have a difficult few months, and then the situation will ease over time. So now is kind of the the decision mark point where leaders need to determine what they want their future to look.
0: And and how much time do we have to make that decision? If you were going to put a timescale on it,
1: clearly. Uh, we have left it pretty late. Uh, I'd say we're right fairly close to the clock at this point.
0: Um, you know, there was an extraordinary uh, interview in The Economist with uh, General Valery uh, Zaluzhny, um that uh, I know um, drew the ire of Volodymyr Zelensky uh, for its brutal candor. Um, and in it, uh, Zeluzhny, for The handful of people who might not have read it, I command everybody to check out that interview because it was a great interview and it was a candid one and it was very insightful. He was grateful to the West for the equipment that Ukraine has gotten, but basically also said that unfortunately, we didn't get what we needed when we needed it to be able to execute our campaigns. We needed ATACMs and fighters when we needed them. Now that we're getting them late, the Russians have built up their capabilities and and have an ability to counteract. Uh, capabilities. In each one of these, we've been trying to not antagonize the Russians in every decision and be cautious and outthink or overthink what the Ukrainians might need, as opposed to just giving them what they need. To the point now where Zaluzhny is saying, look, I mean, we need a massive technological breakthrough. Otherwise, this will be stalemated, right? I think he used, you know, we we need gunpowder. What are the capabilities the Ukrainians need and need in, in volume? That's the first question. And then the second question I'd like to follow up with is, what does this tell us about the nature of advantage and having the right capability at the right time without really overthinking it too much?
1: I think it is an extraordinary article. Um, However, I would say the biggest challenge for the Ukrainians at this point is actually force quality. Uh, There is the question of whether they continue to receive a sufficient volume of equipment to keep them in the fight. Um, But... Throughout the offensive, one of the biggest challenges was the scale at which Ukrainian units were able to synchronize effects. Uh, Essentially, they were fighting, you know, a brigade was fighting two companies up. Um, And if the Ukrainians are to regenerate offensive combat power, they need to expand the scale at which they are operating. Um, That is difficult to do because it requires uh, training, collective training at a larger scale than is easily achievable in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, And so they need the assistance of their partners and allies to do that. Um, And they also need assistance in training staff officers uh, who can plan and execute higher intent Mm -hmm. laterally because they've significantly increased the size of their force. uh, And of course, it takes a long time to train staff officers. Um, And so... If they're able to do that, then I think they will very quickly uh, gain significant tactical advantage over the Russians. The Russians are suffering from similar problems, degradation of field grade officers, um, and are struggling to train um, at scale. Then you get into the question of equipment. Um, and the the reality is, is that there aren't you know, miraculous technological solutions to these problems, um, but whatever is provided, It needs to be provided with a sufficient timeline ahead of it for the ukrainians to properly integrate it into the force um the decision to provide equipment in late january last year and it often arrived around you know march um left essentially two months for units to receive learn how to use prepare to operate that equipment which is a very very short amount of time Um, and so i think it's more about sequencing Uh, and the integration of the different lines of effort than it is about uh, a specific capability at this
0: point. Vladimir Putin and the Russian model always is, I may lose 10 battles, but I'll eventually grind through and win the war. And that's been Putin's view. I am more patient. I will throw more people into the meat grinder um it doesn't really matter to me uh you know what my losses are or what your losses are as long as i'm i'm killing you and and also by the way um you know doing um you know trying to exterminate ukrainian culture for good measure as well a tremendous piece on 60 minutes on that this week your 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 sense on whether this is over actually in a sense and how it can be characterized as anything but a victory for russia at this point
1: So i think the first thing is that for ukrainians it's an existential fight and their will to resist remains um very steadfast uh, and that's that's critical secondly the russians can have as much ambition as they like but so long as they are taking a significant level of attrition they are not able to regenerate units that are able to conduct effective offensive operations um, and so, so long as that's the case, then if we are able to regain territory, it's unlikely to be subsequently lost. Um, the Russian bet is, as you say, that if they fight this out for three more years, they will exhaust our will and exhaust Ukraine's capacity. Um, but three more years of this level of expenditure uh, in Russia is is also pretty tough to bear. Uh the the Russians, you know, are really throwing everything at this. And so, if we can convince them that actually, irrespective of what happens in a U.S. election, you know, European partners will fill the gap, irrespective of um, what the Russians think the future looks like, we are able to industrially mobilize to meet the threat. Then you start changing the calculus on Russian prospects. Um, and so I think there there is a strategic approach that leads to a, a more successful outcome. Um, simply mobilizing more Russian personnel doesn't achieve substantial gains on the battlefield. Um, yeah. If the Ukrainians are not able to liberate their territory um, and they continue to lose ground, you know, the initiative swings to Russia. Um, because they don't have the means to blunt those attacks, they don't have the artillery ammunition to be able to defeat Russian attacks, then we start looking uh, in a, on a much more negative trajectory.
0: Does, does the prospect of Donald Trump getting re-elected America's president as America's president change the calculus in Europe to step up its game? Because unfortunately... The Republican Party is opposed to Ukraine aid, um, and uh, the former president has made clear once back in office um, he will not be particularly interested in pursuing this fight. And indeed, you know, folks already on the other side of the Atlantic are girding for all uh, the past arguments to be resuscitated. Um, ultimately, is this sufficient to drive? Europe to step up its game sufficiently that it it can supplant the United States or, or manage to defend itself without America's help?
1: Uh, I mean, I don't think Europe can supplant the United States in terms of what the United States brings, but whether it can meets Ukra- meet Ukraine's defense needs by the beginning of 2025, is uh, it, it certainly has the capacity to do that if it decides to make the investments. Um, I don't think that it it will meet that threshold um, based on based on the current trajectory. Um, but if the electoral politics in the US are looking less and less certain, uh, then it will absolutely start to shape European decision making. Um, and I think the experience of Trump's last term shows that ally for allies, at least, you know, all bets are off. <laughs> um, there isn't necessarily a strong correlation between what Trump says and what Trump does. Um, so there's a significant level of unpredictability involved. But, uh, right. well, you saw Donald Tusk's um, recent statements, to the European Parliament, uh, about the, the very serious risks that Europe perceives uh, from a Trump presidency. So those conversations are already very much underway.
0: Uh, and it's it's very interesting that Poland decided, I mean, for a whole variety of reasons, but Korea uh, as a preeminent uh, supplier was certainly, you know, not missed on a, on a lot of people for both its armor and its uh, artillery systems, even if uh, Poland is relying on the United States, obviously, for combat aircraft and the like. Let me just ask one clarification. Are the Russians getting any better, uh, Jack? And in their, right, I mean, we talk about their capabilities. You talked about training being the issue on both sides in a paucity of Uh, sufficiently trained people. There's this sense that somehow Wagner guys getting involved is going to help things, which I don't necessarily know it will. From your standpoint, are the Russians getting better ultimately as they do this?
1: Structurally, they have resolved quite a lot of the issues that were hampering their ability to conduct defensive operations uh, this time last year. Uh, And we've seen a move away from disposable troops, as it were, towards a more standardized set of line units that that have a, a clear training process and an equipping structure. Um, so in that sense, institutionally, structurally, they're improving. The The availability of certain capabilities like Lancet and so on seems to be uh, improving. Um, but in terms of the competence of their soldiers and junior officers to conduct offensive operations, it is still a mess. Uh, and that is that is uh, not helped by the fact that they keep prematurely committing units. So um, at the moment, we are not seeing a, a significant increase in force quality. Uh, and really, there's a race to improve force quality on both sides. So uh, that's that's a really critical factor.
0: Are, are the Ukrainians uh, getting better? I mean, Britain has now surpassed, I think, 80,000 Ukrainians trained so far, whatever the number is, very admirable figure. Uh, and you talked about the sheer time it takes to grow, uh, battlefield leaders. On the other hand, this is a very kinetic environment and, and, and soldiers that have survived scores of engagements, uh, you know, the, the, the next time they go out, it's the last time they go out. I mean, ultimately how are the Ukrainians doing?
1: I think it's really important to contextualize that when the training was set up in Europe, There was a desperate requirement to train infantry to hold ground and to expand the breadth of battle space that the Ukrainians could uh, defend. Um, Defensive operations are much easier than offensive operations, and so the training is five weeks. Right Now in the Second World War, the minimum British soldiers got was 20 weeks, and it was significantly more than that for most specialisms. before they were considered basically competent. And so uh, the Ukrainians get very little training and, and that hampers their ability to conduct offensive operations. It's it's not just the individual skills, uh, it's also the t- opportunity they get to work together in larger groups, right? A battalion and brigade. Um, a company, you see them do collective training and therefore their companies can fight pretty well as units. Um, but when you start getting above that uh, things become more challenging um synchronization becomes harder and so um this is this is how we need to re-gear the training you know which is something that we can do uh, and it needs to be done collaboratively with the ukrainians so that our training pipeline feeds into theirs um but it's it's a really important line of effort
0: and and very briefly if you were going to put what are the handful of systems you said that the training is ultimately the most important thing at this point, but they still need things and we need to get to the next generation of things that they need from your standpoint, what is on the thing list that they need, um, both in, in terms of, uh, defending, but also to be able to press the campaign forward next year.
1: Tactical air defense, number one, so that they can keep the chaos off them because if the Russian air force can gain medium altitude, uh, Dominance over the front, then that could genuinely change the military situation. Uh, artillery ammunition, they need about two point four million rounds a year. Um, barrels, they're going to need about eighteen hundred barrels a year. Um, Protected mobility needs to be repaired, uh, and you know that that's very important. Um, medical logistics, absolutely critical. Breaching equipment. You know, they're still gonna need Miklicks and, and other things. Um yeah, I, I could I could go on. Um UAVs, you know, there's a continual demand for UAVs. Um and command and control systems uh, as well, radios and so on. Um so there, there's a fairly significant shopping list, but the thing about it is uh Gimlers, you know, there is a going to be a continued need for Gimlers to be able to prevent the Russians from concentrating fires. Um but None of those items solve the problem, right? And uh, far too often, people have focused on this technology or that technology as transformative. Um, Ultimately, this is going to come down to training, mass, tactics,
0: planning. Uh, It's not going to come down to a Wunderwerfer. Let me take you to um, the Gaza war. At the time of this uh, recording, Israeli forces had surrounded uh, Al-Shifa Hospital, ditto for Al-Quds Hospital, I think a little further to the north uh, in the Strip. Um, Israel maintains that there are command and control centers uh, under those hospitals and that the buildings should be evacuated to allow them to conduct military operations. Uh, the Hamas-led medical authority in Gaza rejects that claim, as do some international medical staff at the facilities. That said, some do concede that there could be tunnels far below the buildings that they're not unaware of. Um, Hamas is a brutal terror group. It puts no value on human life, whether Israeli Jews, Israeli Arabs, Thai guest workers, uh, or the Palestinian civilians that they put in the in the middle uh, of all of this, indeed by design. right? The goal is to put Israel in a position to cause even more civilian casualties um, to further enrage not just Muslim but international public opinion. Um, uh, Hamas's and, and...
1: position is that it wants a military solution to this conflict, um, and right. it achieves that by making this a regional war. So Hamas is trying to drive escalation and it's trying to right. diplomatically isolate Israel by forcing Israel to fight in a way that uh, necessarily causes very significant pushback internationally.
0: Exactly. And so, my question is if Israel's stated aim is the eradication of Hamas, which is a movement, right, how, what is the key to success in this military campaign um, where international public opinion? irrespective of the, the, the tragedy of October 7, is, is turning against Israel? What is the military ground combat solution here? And is it actually a tenable, is it an achievable aim from your standpoint?
1: Um, so Israeli rhetoric has drifted a few times on this, um, but the the more realistic uh stated aim is to degrade Hamas militarily and politically, right? It's to remove its ability to control territory so that it, it can't uh govern territory and repurpose aid and infrastructure development and so on for military means. Um, and secondly, to kill its fighters and to destroy its stockpiles. Um, killing its fighters and destroying its stockpiles, I think, is eminently achievable. Uh, removing its Governance is, uh, it depends on what the political structure is that follows. Um, and so that's not as guaranteed, but it is achievable. Uh, eradicating the ideology, I think, isn't. Um, however, I think the view among quite a lot of Israel's security personnel is that they need to discredit the ideology. The ideology is that there is a military solution to this conflict for the Palestinians. And I think the the IDF want to demonstrate very clearly to Palestinians that there is no military uh, solution that ends well for them. And so what Hamas has been selling them for quite some time is uh, a lie. Um, Whether that is the message that is taken up, we'll have to wait and see. Um, but I think a lot of Israeli officials look at, say, what has happened to Daesh, the Islamic state, um, and to a number of other ideological movements when they have lost their control of territory and a significant amount of their military capability, and have essentially taken the view that they can live with Hamas as a terrorist organization, they can't live with it as a shadow government. Um, so there are elements of what the Israelis are doing that I think are achievable, and um, but the longer term strategic outlook is much less certain, not, not least because the Israelis you know, weren't anticipating this and they've come up with their plan on it you know, very, very quickly. Um, and so they, I, they don't know how this ends.
0: Unfortunately, uh, and it's uh, been often discussed, unfortunately, uh, that you know Israel's calculus was unfortunately for some time to build up Hamas uh, as uh, sort of a divide in conquer tool to sort of avert a two-state solution uh, as well. Uh, And now we're kind of coming around that mowing the grass is not necessarily uh, the right approach to this. International pressure is mounting uh, on Israel, as you said, right? The Hamas strategy is to put Israel in an untenable position. Uh, Israel uh, also understands that it does have to exhibit the crazy landlord tendency, right, as they did in 2006, so that even a Nasrallah goes, holy cow, I never thought they would respond that violently uh, to the abduction of a handful of soldiers, Uh, right? Um, And and so, right, in each cycle, it has to sort of amp the outcome in order to gain a deterrent margin. And there are some who say it's one of the reasons why Nasrallah hasn't acted up again is he understands what could be coming his way. And it was very, very bad the last time. And the Israelis are in no mood to sort of be trifled with this time. But now, Jack, you have international leaders, whether it's the president of the United States saying hospitals must be protected. Um, You know, international leaders uh, saying that civilians must be spared and that the toll is too high. Is Israel already losing part of this narrative? And at what point does the pressure get such that it interferes with any strategic aim to further degrade Hamas? Because that's a long campaign. We succeeded against ISIS by literally flattening places and causing massive casualties. We did eradicate ISIS, but we did it at at an incredible toll over a long period of time even when we were trying to use precision you know air and artillery power and what have you and and spec ops rates
1: right? yeah i mean the israelis are achieving the same thing with much more liberal use of firepower uh and therefore more quickly um and i think i think people have exaggerated the difficulty that the IDF is having in Gaza City. Uh, I think the IDF is, is trained for this fight for a long time. They're pretty well equipped for it uh, and rather like in Fallujah, you know I think they're they're gonna work their way through. Um, they've taken significantly fewer casualties so far than they have in some previous rounds of, of this particular battle. Um, so I think if you if the IDF can can carve out uh, six weeks or so, they will have significantly degraded Hamas uh, and destroyed a very substantial proportion of its infrastructure. Um, How far they can go after that is dependent on a couple of things. Firstly, there is a part of the Israeli system that is quite keen to provoke escalation. Um, And there are kind of two strands to that. There's a a radical um, strand which sees that as an opportunity to um,
0: expand Israeli control over areas. Um, Specifically over Gaza and the West Bank, right? This is the cataclysmic battle, and let's sort this out once and for all.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So that's an ideological strand in Israeli politics. There is also a security strand which takes the view that over time, Israel's security position has been deteriorating because of the increasing precision uh, of Hezbollah's rocket arsenal in particular. Um, And what that means in terms of their ability to defend themselves from those salvos, because all of a sudden they have to intercept every munition. And so if they're going to have a fight, they would rather fight people sequentially now than have to fight them in a combined way in a couple of years. Um, So there are parts of the Israeli system that want a provocation that they can respond to and and then fight through that. Um, At the same time, they you know, also want to try and uh, work out what they're going to do with Gaza, with the population, what the strategic structure is. Um, And they have been responsive to pressure from the international community. So I think this is where you need the international community to show leadership and say, firstly, we understand the need to displace people for humanitarian reasons so that they can receive aid and they're separated from the fighting. That cannot be permanent displacement. There needs to be a process, uh, and ultimately, there needs to be a political solution to this. Um, And we don't want it to escalate regionally. Um, And so, so long as uh, that pressure is applied, and there is a clear plan that is developed, um, then I think you can get into a better position. But we shouldn't underestimate the risk that this continues to escalate.
0: It's very unclear how much progress the Israelis are making against their stated aims, right? Um And, you know, who's who's been taking there? There is a degree of um, skepticism. Uh, what is being accomplished from your standpoint? Because you said the Israelis are making more progress than they're being given credit for. And I understand much about this operation is they're holding close to their vest for a lot of very good reasons. From your standpoint, where are they being successful?
1: Um, so, I mean, I've, I've been out to israel and spent a fair amount of time with the idf and i was out there a couple of weeks before this happened um and you know they have a pretty methodical approach to this stuff which is that you you close off movement corridors using armor because armor can sit uh in the line of fire and use its sensors to be able to close down enemy movement you therefore fix the enemy into smaller groups and then you defeat them in detail uh, and you're very methodical in your clearances. You control both ends of the tunnels that you find and you destroy them. Um, and what we're observing is is the use of firstly airstrikes to to destroy uh, Hamas individuals that they identify through collection. Um, secondly, the use of pretty heavy ordnance to destroy some of the infrastructure with standoff. And then this very deliberate clearance process. Uh, and they they are, Degrading a, a very substantial part of the military infrastructure that Hamas had built, um, they're having to because when they when they don't and they advanced over this infrastructure and don't destroy it, Hamas uses that infrastructure to infiltrate behind them and they start getting um, RPGs and other munitions uh, coming at them from various angles. So um, I think they're going to be pretty methodical, but in terms of military advantage. Hamas is not uh, inflicting some significant losses on the Israelis at this point, either in terms of armor or in terms of personnel.
0: For some 20 years, the U.S. Army has been talking about the imperative of getting better at fighting in cities. Uh, And we saw Fallujah 1, Fallujah 2, obviously Mosul uh, and ISIS fights, and then watching how the Syrian civil war, for example, unfolded. Uh, and And critics have said, "Look, you're not focused on the right thing and you should be focused on great power competition. And the army points out, you know that China and Russia also have cities. and it was in those cities, for example, in World War II that some of the bloodiest fighting took place, whether uh, it was Stalingrad or elsewhere. From your standpoint, what are the kind of broader Gaza city fighting lessons that you think are actually fully applicable? in a great power world where we have a tendency of thinking about armored warfare on planes and uh, you know very sophisticated combined arms over vast areas as
1: opposed to firstly that the the maneuver uh, in the open sets up the conditions for achieving operational success but the transition from tactical to operational success usually involves seizing urban terrain whether that is by cutting it off and compelling the enemy to withdraw as in Kherson, for example in ukraine uh, or whether it is by storming that urban environment. Um, and your ability to do that is critical to the, cap- you know, the effectiveness of your ground forces. Um, I think we're seeing some interesting things about the impact of air power, right? People talk about urban terrain as protective. It's not very protective if the enemy can establish medium altitude coverage over urban terrain, uh, because the the weight of those munitions will invalidate uh, the protection offered by the urban environment. And so uh, the first challenge to defending urban terrain, I think, is actually an air defense problem. Um, And then there's the question of how do you maintain movement? You know, a lot of people, a lot of forces that conduct urban defenses actually lose and they usually lose because they lose control of the ground lines of communication into and out of the urban space, because that means they're not able to rotate troops. They're not able to resupply. and they often lose significant casualties on those g while they're doing rotations. That's certainly been the experience in Ukraine. And so fighting around the city often sets the conditions for how the fight goes inside it. Um, and, and the two problems are intimately related. And then the third thing, I think, is that it does take a fair amount of specialist training and specialist tools. Um, and you know, generalist units that have not spent significant time training in that space will struggle. They will, they will take a lot of casualties unnecessarily. Um, whereas if you have units that are prepared and are properly equipped, adopt the right tactics, then it is a surmountable problem.
0: So, so that the tunnel challenge is not as insurmountable. As the initial armchair general's view, right? Uh, the tunnels are so pervasive, there's no way they're going to be able to operate.
1: Well, I think people have this vision of, of everyone sort of trying to clear their way through tunnels. And sometimes that is necessary. Usually it's not. There are lots of ways of making a tunnel pretty uninhabitable. Um, And so tunnels slow down tempo in the same way that mines do, right? And we we face this problem in in Mosul where the combination of IEDs, which Hamas actually hasn't been using a huge number of in Gaza, um, combined with subterranean infrastructure meant that you had to be so deliberate in clearing urban space in order to make sure that you couldn't be infiltrated from behind. Um, and then you would take a lot of casualties. But that also meant that you had to deal with all of these IDs very methodically, just slowed down the tempo of activity. Um, and that sets up lots of opportunities for the defender to be able to inflict casualties. Um, in this context, uh, yeah, it means that the Israelis have to be slow and deliberate, but uh, they, Hamas doesn't have the tools that a state adversary would, right? This isn't a great power conflict. So um, in some ways, it's a much simpler challenge for the Israelis, just because the adversary lacks the capacity to inflict, um, well, to punish them when they make mistakes and to exploit the opportunities that are created by things like the enforced deliberate clearance.
0: Um, Let me uh, ask you uh, one last uh, question. Um, How much of, uh, and I think we discussed this the last time we spoke, uh, and uh, I understand you just got back from Taiwan. So this is kind of a timely question. Um, There is a lot of focus, and then there are some in Washington who look at both what's happening in the Middle East and what's happening in Ukraine and say it's not particularly relevant and that our focus should be uh, on uh, the defense of uh, Taiwan. Uh, At the end of the day, Taiwan has major cities. It has a porcupine strategy. It has some elements that are similar, other elements that are not. What is it that we're seeing in terms of capability? ideas, operational concepts that we're seeing either in uh Israel's war against Hamas or Ukraine's war to liberate itself or Russia's campaign to uh make uh you know to collapse Ukraine that are lessons you think that are particularly applicable now as we try to build up Taiwan's capabilities. So the first thing is is
1: I think the the strategic lessons are actually uh feed into one another, right? If if we boast and we often do that hey russia has the same industrial size as italy right you hear that a lot and yet russia is outproducing nato um what deterrence message does that send to china about how serious we are right uh so there's that point the other point is if you're talking about a fight over taiwan for the u.s you're talking about the need to control the sea lanes of communication throughout the south china sea which means you need a lot of countries in the ASEAN group that have various relationships with china often testy but don't necessarily want to be in a full conflict who need to give you overflight rights basing rights who need to give you permission to operate from their territory who need to potentially help you control those SLOCs, some of which are part of their sovereign waters um, and so how allies perceive you as a, as a partner is really important and if the thing that people see in ukraine is that the us gets bored after two years uh, and starts you know, questioning its commitment to uh, partners, then the calculus among countries that the U.S. wants to partner with about whether it's serious and what it says suddenly starts shifting. Um, and so the U.S. talks about competition. The fight in Europe today sets the conditions for the competition politically that the U.S. is trying to win. Uh, in the indo-pacific uh, these two things are uh, related um, operationally I think it's really worth looking at the Black Sea and seeing how sticky uh, blockades are and thinking very carefully about how you uh open blockades um I think also there's often a very heavy emphasis uh in Taiwan on defeating the first wave for me defeating the first wave is kind of the easy bit you can counterattack them it's if the second wave gets across that you're in real trouble, and so the emphasis needs to be very clearly focused on how do you defeat the second wave in depth of people trying to cross the strait. Um, I think there's a lesson in terms of the continuity between grey zone, uh, a short attempt at short decisive fait accompli, and a long war. Um, people often talk about these as separate vignettes to be wargamed, and actually one feeds into the other. Right, one the the shadow play sets the conditions for the fait accompli attempt. The fate accompli attempt, if it fails, turns into a long conflict. And so you have to look at these as a related uh, set of um, contingencies, not as uh, separate contingencies. Um, and then there's the question about efficiency of air defense um, and the fact that you know Taiwan is not going to be able to uh, intercept a significant proportion of the munitions that come its way. And it is going to have to uh, prioritize what it intercepts and what it defends um, in order to be able to keep the PLAF the chinese air force out of that medium altitude band above the island that is a strategic imperative and so how it looks at uh maintaining a sustained air defense um is is going to be absolutely critical i mean there there are loads of lessons um i could i could go on for a while but i think the the View that some people have—that these are unrelated, that we one's a distraction from the other, that there's nothing to learn. The theaters are very different. Um, is retreating into a world uh, that people would like to live in, you know, where they can play with the with the train set that interests them, uh, rather than right. actually dealing with the world as it is. And not least because China, Iran, North Korea and Russia are increasingly collaborating in this conflict and it's becoming an increasingly uh, joined up problem in any case. So, you know, you can't you can't overlook that.
0: Let me ask one uh, last question. Uh, You and your uh, team at Russi uh, did an incredible job sort of specifying the amount of Western componentry uh, that actually fuels the Russian military and has fueled it for the last couple of decades. And we still have incidents of, you know, computers going to a former satellite state and over to the Russians or washing machines and consumer electronics and the like, you know, Western companies boasting about how many, you know what dryers uh, or dishwashers Tajikistan is buying you know, as if the Tajik middle class is is interested in upgrading their their tableware cleaning technology and we're, um, we're
1: still seeing high-end uh, export control chips being sold from u s companies pretty much directly to the Russians via you know a couple of middlemen um so uh, this is an ongoing problem I see.
0: Okay. Well, so much for my, you know, I, I was hoping because you were part of a a team and there were hearings in the United States and elsewhere, right? I mean, are we making any progress on this whatsoever? Yeah, absolutely. There was some focus on it, right?
1: You've seen, uh, more sanctions, individuals being sanctioned. There've been prosecutions, uh, people are mobilizing on this issue and, and progress is being made, but it is a, it's not a problem that you solve, right? It It is a, it is a, it is a, continuous threat that you manage and it's about how much gets through it's not whether things get through so uh the question is can we maintain our vigilance and can we keep up uh proactive enforcement or do we become complacent and settle back into a situation where we say well you know we sanctioned these guys so uh that that's enough and the answer is no, it's not. You have to you have to keep up the effort, and you have to keep up the focus. Um, and you know there are lots of folks doing that, so I think um, it's a it's a struggle that is ongoing.
0: Jack, thank you so very much. Uh, always a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, really appreciate your time, and already looking forward to welcoming you back again. Thanks so much.
1: Good to be with you.